I, I was uh, flabbergasted. I uh, got access to this crumbling old filing cabinet, and there, untouched for something like uh, you know 60 years, were all of the original negotiation correspondence for the stage play version of Dracula. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. (laughs) It's the Nitrateville Radio Halloween Spooktacular. We'll talk with David J. Skull, author of many books on horror films, including The Monster Show, which marks its 25th anniversary this year. Just as it has been 25 years since I committed my beloved Lenore to the crypt. And our regular Portononi Film Festival correspondent, Lockie Heiss, will tell us about this year's silent film festival in Italy. Italy, where I have so many memories of my dear Lenore that help me keep out the sound of her scratching at her tomb, begging to be released. How it haunts me, as the thought of ever missing an episode of Nitrateville Radio should haunt you. So subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and spare yourself the fate that haunts me. Yes, Lenore, I hear you like a podcast on repeat forever. Would you travel all the way to Italy just to sit inside a movie theater watching old movies? That's what everyone who goes to Il Giornate del Cinema Muto, the silent movie festival every October in Pordenone, Italy, does. And for some films, that's exactly what you should do, says Nitrateville member Lockie Heiss, who returns this year as our annual Pordenone foreign correspondent. This is the Halloween episode, and I thought, well, it's appropriate that you're in the Halloween episode because you did a commentary track for Nosferatu. I did. And uh, it was a long time ago uh, in a galaxy far away, and I was thrilled to do it. Did it as part uh, uh, with David Shepard, who, um, who, who originally released it as a laser disc. And, uh, and that's how and long course, ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to tell you that's how long ago it was, and we were thrilled that it came out um, in that format. Because of course it became obsolete a few years later, and I just tell people it, it was out on disc. Yeah, <laughs> and don't get into the de- don't get into the details. Uh, um, I had um, taken David's class, his silent film class, and at the end of the semester, he wanted us to do a paper, uh, pick a silent film of your choice, and. I picked Nosferatu because I'd seen it already, and I thought it would be the really easy to do a paper on it. It was just a film that has a lot going on. I did the paper, and I, at the end of the, uh, I, you know, I got it back from David, who liked it. And on the last page, he says, "I like this paper so much, I'd like you to expand it, and and we can use it as a commentary track." So, um, it's a, I think that was about as good, uh, nice a 
remark as a person could possibly get from a from just a routine semester, um, you know, a, a term paper. So I, I and find immortality on Laserdisc. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a that's a very funny remark. Uh, there are uh, you know little niches that still um, like the disc, and um, at some point I have to get a disc that I have and and rescue um, the supplemental tracks, which which didn't get. Uh, converted over to the um, DVD and, uh, you know, get that all digitalized. But I'm like everybody else. You've got all these uh, slides and all these memories that, that have to get converted, and someday I'll do it. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's talk about a much more recent memory, which is the uh, 2018 Pordenone Silent Film Festival. I didn't see any particularly horror content, so I guess the theme of this show falls apart at this point but tell me what you uh, what you saw there <laughs> yeah i would call it a, a week of epics and i think if i if i came out of that with any real sense of surprise it's that how many epic films there were out there that i hadn't seen or or didn't even know anything about and i when i say epic i mean uh, in in theme and or or length uh we saw some very long films this week and uh uh, you know, some of them I knew about, but some of them were a complete blank to me. And uh, uh, I just find it amusing that, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years in silent film, and, and there's still a whole week of films for me to, to learn about, which is a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we started off with Captain Salvation, and um, which is an epic in theme, if, any, if anything. And uh, uh, through the week, um, we had a, a French film, Fadere, 1924, uh, Alantadid, which I'll I'll just talk about as Queen of Atlantis because it's so much easier for me to um, to discuss that way. But I, I was very impressed by that film, two and a half hours. Then we had a Norwegian film called The Ghost Elk, 1927. I, I would call that Moby Dick with Antlers. <laughs> uh, and that was our, 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 our supernatural uh, kind of a horror film for the week um that film was very very interesting movie which is a i think a blank to most of us and then we had another uh film i would call epic which is very much in the spirit of of um either christmas and or halloween which is um uh, the Houston film the, the phantom uh, chariot that was a film i had i was very familiar with but it was fabulous to see it on a big screen with the with the with the great accompaniment and uh I think that's where where, uh, where the festival really came through because these films um, are going to be not very not optimal in any way on a TV. Uh, imagine uh, watching Queen of Atlantis uh, two and a half hours on a small screen, and um, this is just uh, why why would you want to? And I guess unless you absolutely had to. And then the closing night was um, uh, a, a film by uh, Raymond Bernard, The Chess Players from 1927, and that's uh, a two-hour-plus film, uh, which I, I had heard all, a lot of good things about, had never seen it, and um, to see that on the big screen as it was a huge pleasure. Yeah, I've seen that on DVD. Milestone released it years and years ago, and I think it's one of those things where the transfer just doesn't compare to what people are doing now. I think that the, my learning experience from this festival is that if you're going to watch these big epics, this is the, exactly how to do them. Uh, I mean, imagine trying to watch 2001 uh, on like a wrist wrist TV thing or something. <laughs> you know, it's just that we could do it by why bother. Uh, and uh, in particular, I think the Queen of Atlantis uh, 
it's been done, remade a couple times that they made one with Bridget Helm in the 30s, which some people like I haven't seen. Um, but they shot this film uh, in Algeria on location. And Fader has a you know, very good sense of space and uh, the actors. And I, I have to say that I was more impressed with this film, uh, at least from that angle, than say even Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, you know, you really get an idea of sand. With, with, um, <laughs> with, with, uh, the, the, the first part of the film is them getting to the, um, the lost kingdom of Atlantis. The last part of the film is them trying to get away. Uh, the middle part is, is the least interesting part of the film, although it's certainly worth watching. But the beginning, the ending and the end are, are, are spectacular just in terms of the sense you really are there. The sand's really giving the trouble. Uh, you could die. All those things are, are, are have a, a real sense of realism. So um, a big plus for that, that, that film, which, of course, once again, you miss that on a small screen. It would just look like, like sand blowing around or something. Um, uh, and the chess player, you know, a huge, big production. Uh, and uh, it was a rousing film at the end. We just uh, we had a terrific score. And uh, it, it was uh, kind of an anti-epic uh, because the first half is sort of this Napoleon uh, grand um, uh, battle. And then, but the, uh, at, at the end, before the intermission, you just see her playing it on the piano. Uh, is it the Duchess? And you see her just in her mind how things are going, but then you see the reality was that the police army is, has been disastrously beaten, disastrously. And and then the, the second half of the film is a completely different story. Uh, it was a really interesting film, and uh, you know there was it was a very strong week. They had a lot of uh, of films that I I just didn't either hadn't seen before or just were completely unknown to me. Now, I saw one of the highlights was a retrospective of silent films by John Stahl, who is mainly known for soap operas in the 30s that were all remade by Ross Hunter and Douglas Sirk in the 50s. I was especially interested by something called The Lincoln Cycle, and it sounded like you were impressed by that. Yeah, very much so. Um, they're, they're having a, a problem at Pertinoni, I guess you could call it a high-quality problem, is that uh, for the serious films, they're often printing them at nine in the morning, which is uh, which was is killing us after three or four days because we're up till two or three, um, you know, the night before, and and then somehow we have to kind of drag ourselves out of bed for the nine a.m. show and take a couple shots of espresso. Uh, that the Lincoln series was was the surprise of the festival. They were directed by Stahl. Basically, the the, the idea of those of those uh, short films was that. Uh, they would start with Abraham Lincoln typically as president, and then something would happen, and he would and then he would remember something that happened when he was younger. Uh, and, and so the 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 shows were thematically organized, or the the episodes were organized by uh, by events, like at the first trial. Uh, the ver- one of the very first shows was uh, uh, talking about his mother. And uh, the acting uh, of this of all these series, the acting was terrific. Uh, and I, I, I was in tears um, at the end of that film. I think half the audience was sort of blubbering. And uh, the other the other episodes were almost as good. Uh, and you get a, a, a real sense of connection uh, in a way that silent films can can do because it was very emotionally set up. Uh, and um, uh, a very strong series, uh, 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 and uh, 
once again, this was a complete blank. I think to or just about everybody who who had any connection, uh, Saul's name is not even on that because um, uh, uh, this was early in his career, and uh, the man who was the actor of Lincoln, whose name is Benjamin Chapin, um, had a title card that said, you know, written, directed, produced, and so on by Chapin. But but uh, Saul later on in his career made it public that he, he had directed the films. And uh, uh, um, so the Lincoln cycle, it's another great series. Uh, uh, you know, good luck in getting that available to viewers uh, because it's, it's well worth it. One show that I know they had was they premiered the reconstruction of Forbidden Paradise, which has long been the uh, forbidden uh, film in Ernst Lubitsch's silent career, along with Rosita, the one that everybody wanted to see in couldn't really get their hands on yes um and i liked uh, the film a lot uh i knew though i was uh, at that point you, you when you get to a certain point of, of i was watching these jokes these beautiful lubish jokes and everybody around me was laughing their heads off and i was like um i was thinking okay this is funny and then i knew i had to go i had to go home and go to bed go to back to the hotel and go to bed uh the um the reconstruction had uh, some um a lot of discussion about about the, some digitalized effects uh, that they had, and uh, they sort of invented certain scenes. Or they had they did more than just have uh, still photos, for example, which is often what what's done for for trying to bridge scenes. I, I'm not the one to to, um, to say whether it was working or not because I I was uh, I was uh, too tired. But uh, they because you know the I, I was seeing, I thought, well, that's, what did they do there? Uh, I, but there, afterward, the next day, there were um, people who liked that, and uh, there were people who thought that was very detracting from the film. My sense was um, that what happens is when you have all these uh, digital capabilities is that you you try to use them, and um, at that point, maybe you're trying to wag the dog. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that, uh, I, I would invite, you know, anyone listening to, to see it and see what they think. I think it's important that they did it that way because uh, maybe a, a couple of years from now, they'll sort of have some consensus about whether that's worth doing or not. Now that I'm curious, I probably would, would want to see what it would look like without any of those things and just see like uh, have um, slugs and those scenes that were missing. And now, and then I would be able to, to tell you because without that knowledge, you, 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 you're just guessing. Yeah. But, but the acting was, was good throughout that, that film and, and, you know, which is once again, uh, hitting all the, what's that called, the marks. You know, they just go bang, bang, and they go through. Anything else that you particularly liked? Well, the back to the stall, there were a number of surprises this week. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, working back at this festival, it was one of the um, better festivals that I've been to in, in, in quite a while. And in terms of, when you think about a festival like this, you think, what do you want to go all the way over to Italy to see that you can't see you know, local in a more local situation, and I, I surely think that was answered here with these um, epics and, and 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 films that were set up in such a huge format way. Uh, Stahl was was not that way. He was, uh, but he was in melodrama, and um, very helpful to watch Stahl's work from from his uh, Lincoln cycle to you know to almost when the when the uh, the end of the uh, silent. Um, they he did a, one of his late silences, let's see, in old Kentucky, I believe, um, the name, and um, with James Murray, 
uh, who is very good in that role. That got a lot of different reaction from the, uh, some people didn't like the, the racial stereotypes in the film. And, and I had completely the opposite reaction. I thought that, that Stahl was much more sympathetic to the, to the African-Americans in the, in the story than he in fact was to the rest of the, of the, of the, of the, of the characters. Uh, and I was very um, pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, and um, so Stahl clearly had his, uh, his eye out for, for, for those kind of issues, uh, you know, before, before uh, synchronized dialogue came in, because, you know, he, he goes over those again, as you, as you said, from the melodramas of the thirties, but it was, um, it was all there, uh, you know, um, by the end of the talkies. And there was um, another film I liked a lot uh, called The Homemaker, 1925 with King uh, Baggett, uh, the director. And um, that was a film where the husband is, uh, is doing the normal business job and the wife is a, is a homemaker. Uh, the husband is doing very badly at work. Yeah, he just isn't cut out for that uh, for the office job, and he sees that if he if he uh, has this big insurance policy, and if he dies by an accident, uh, um, their, their their family, which is not doing well, will, will get a lot of money. But he bungles that too. I think the title cards say um, he can't even you know kill himself right, and instead ends up in a wheelchair. And by this mechanism, the wife is forced to go to work. And um, here's where the film gets quite interesting. Uh, she she she. Uh, prospers in her job, in fact, does really well. And the um, the husband who's in a wheelchair finds he's a much better homemaker than he was uh, in the office. So it's a it's a gender um, uh, vocation reversal film. The film sort of makes the point of how silly silly it is that somebody has to get uh, has to be a, um, a paraplegic for for for, for society just because he starts to get use of his legs back, but then then he has a, the problem of if if the society sees them able to walk again, then they're going to look down on them. And and it's it's, it's clear that the, the filmmakers are making the point out how ridiculous this cultural perception is. And this is way back in 1925. Uh, so the the epics were were ruling the roost, but the, but the melodramas were were coming in uh, wonderfully also uh, this year in uh, Portanoni. Links to more info about what was shown at this year's Pordenone Festival will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. I was working in my audio lab late one night when my eyes beheld a beautiful sight, a new review of this podcast at iTunes. I never drink wine, so it must have been real. But why did it make me feel like now I know what it feels like to be God? Because reviews raise our visibility at iTunes. And you sure don't want to be invisible, man. And help other people discover this podcast, too. Which benefits all of us by spreading the word about the things we like. In short, reviews, good. So why don't you leave us a review and a rating at iTunes? 
what music they make. Different people like different kinds of film books, star biographies, histories of a film's production, and so on. For me, my favorite kind of film book is the kind that looks at why audiences take so strongly to something. How a type of movie really seems to burrow deep into the subconscious of a time and place. And no genre digs into our deepest, darkest thoughts and fears more effectively than horror. David J. Skull's books on the horror genre include Hollywood Gothic, The Tangled Web of Dracula from Stage to Screen, The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror, Screams of Reason, Mad Science and Modern Culture, and biographies of Todd Browning and Claude Rains. He's also been a familiar face and voice on documentaries about the genre and on commentary tracks for DVD releases of titles including Dracula, Frankenstein, and many others. To mark the 25th anniversary of The Monster Show's publication, I wanted to talk to David Skull about the horror genre. We started by talking about how he got into horror as a subject for serious study. And not surprisingly, it all goes back to childhood. Yeah, well, I, I took a long detour. I was, um, you know, a prototypical monster kid of the 1960s and... Um, you know, I cut my teeth on famous monsters of filmland. I was just absolutely uh, head over heels in love with monsters. And um, by high school, I kind of drifted away from it and got interested in other things. I ended up uh, studying uh, journalism and theater and spent the next 20 years uh, uh, working in the professional theater and marketing and promotion and, and that sort of thing. And curiously, that's what brought me back to monsters, because one of my clients in New York was um, a producer. Um, I was working for the Big Apple Circus, creating souvenir programs and materials for them. And uh, Elizabeth McCann, the Broadway producer, was then the executive producer of, uh, of the circus. She was one of the producers of the Frank Langella revival of Dracula in the late 70s. And I um, asked her about it and I said, you know, I've never, I don't know anything about the backstory of that. Do you, are you, do you who was the agent for the, for the play and the Stoker and uh, Hamilton Dean Estates? And um, she put me in touch. I, I was uh, flabbergasted. I uh, got access to this crumbling old filing cabinet and there, untouched for something like uh, you know 60 years, were all of the original negotiation correspondence for the stage play version of Dracula. And I realized I had a gold mine on my hands here. And uh, I mean, because books, unless you you have original research, you know, I, books are not worth doing. In my opinion, people ask me, you know, what, why do you write the books you do? And I say, I write the books I can't find anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, wildly underestimating um, what a uh, 
commitment of time and money it's going to be. <laughs> but then that led to, I, then I found another cache of un, untapped uh, documents in the British Library. Uh, the uh, All the correspondence about uh, Florence Stoker, the widow of Bram Stoker, uh, uh, trying to suppress the uh, silent film Nosferatu, which was a plagiarism of Dracula. And it was a battle royale that went on for years and it was just so there the, the personalities behind uh, uh, Dracula were as fascinating as the book itself and uh, having worked in the theater as long as I did I knew there was always a backstory and um, this was uh, this one was a real winner and I uh, uh, parlayed that uh, research over two books over uh hollywood gothic which was my first nonfiction um exploration of monsters and uh, the monster show a couple of years later dracula is interesting to me in the context of what you talk about in the monster show because i think you show how much horror in that early period of film was shaped by the effects of World War One. You know, disfigurement having become a common thing that people ran into in life after the war. Yeah, one 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 of the points I make in the book is that uh, Lon Chaney, who was the great, um, the master of grotesque characterizations in the 1920s, never played a returning war veteran. But in a sense, that's all he played, and uh, the, his. Uh, uh, Quasimodo and the Phantom. I mean, they look like uh, wounded uh, veterans of uh, World War One who were not assimilated well back into uh, society. Um, they were shunned and forgotten. I mean, you think um, Vietnam veterans were treated badly uh, coming home. Well, it, it all happened before and it happened after World War One. And um, in in a way, uh, the American public was um, was uh, processing and coming to terms with uh, uh, you know the horror of uh, World War One without having to look at it too directly. That's one of the functions. That's uh, one of the problematic functions of horror. It lets us uh, kind of have our cake and eat it too. We uh, uh, we can examine things that are terrifying and disturbing in the real world without having to look at them too directly and uh but it seems to help us get through the night yeah well you know one that particularly struck me i mean i saw phantom of the opera with lon cheney at an early age and you know i kind of expected him to have a blank faced mask of the sort that like michael myers has in halloween instead for much of the movie he has this sort of conventionally handsome face mask which seemed very odd to me, but at a certain point I realized, well, actually, that was something that disfigured veterans were, you know, had made for them or were given were these sort of imitation faces. And we, the TV series Boardwalk Empire depicts somebody who has one of those. Yeah, Cheney wore a kind of a, uh, it was like a half mannequin mask with a little uh, fringe of cloth at the at the bottom, and it was very similar to the kind of prosthetic things that uh, were being created for uh, wounded veterans. Um, and uh, they weren't always uh, completely convincing or realistic. Uh, uh, World War One gave 
the plastic surgery industry, the biggest boost it had ever it had ever had. And a lot of the techniques that are used today with facelifts and and reconstructive surgery uh, were all uh, born in the uh, in the, the trauma and conflict of World War One. Well, let's talk about, I mean, there's two figures associated with that so much. One is Cheney, and the other one, of course, is the director of many of those films, Todd Browning, uh, who seemed to have a real fascination with abnormalities in that way that would lead to his most famous and more or less career-ending film, Freaks. And they, and they were both very they were popular figures in the 1920s. Audiences were eating this up. What was What was going on there with the two of them? Browning... Is he's still a fascinating enigma? I'm completing the revised uh, version of Dark Carnival, which is my um, biography of Browning, first published in the in the 1990s, um, and uh, I've added a, I hope, a great deal of um, additional insight and uh, in, in, into, into Browning and his uh, his elusive personality. <laughs> uh, let's 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 call it that way. Browning tapped into the zeitgeist. I think he was a, uh, a, a very instinctive kind of uh, creative force. Uh, he came out of uh, you know circuses and carnivals, and uh, was very much a he had a carny sensibility. You know, it, it's kind of us against uh, the rubes out there, and let's try to put something over on them and and make some money and. Uh, that is part of his uh, his ethos. And when he, after he made uh, a couple of films with with Cheney, uh, in which he was crippled or disfigured, it uh, obviously struck a chord with the public. They couldn't get enough of this, and um, so it's a toss up, as in my mind at least, as to whether Browning was interested in in disability and disfigurement as uh, uh, as a creative theme, or he was just going after the money. Uh, he repeats things in film after film after film, down to uh, camera setups. And, and um, uh, so was he really an auteur, or was he just uh, repeating what, what had worked before? If it's not broke, don't fix it. He was very successful. Uh, as a silent film director, he was one of the top paid silent directors and uh, did not make the transition to um, to talkies very well. And I think uh, talkies uh, kind of kind of predicted his his um, his downfall. Um, even even Dracula, which is his most famous film, is in many ways a silent movie. It's it's uh, it's striking Frankenstein and Dracula in uh, 1931 um, have one foot in the talking era and one foot in the silence. And, um, you know, despite uh, Karloff and uh, despite Lugosi's, uh, you know, distinctive voice, both he and Karloff give essentially pantomime performances. They're, uh, they're closer to uh, the, uh, the, the, the Cheney kind of uh, characters than to uh, what we think of as modern monsters. And, Cheney, of course, was uh, would probably have played Dracula and theoretically the Frankenstein monster as well. Um, Universal build uh, Cheney, uh, Karloff and Lugosi as the new Lon Cheney and a number of their 
their ad campaigns. And uh, but uh, Cheney died of uh, he died of lung cancer uh, shortly before Dracula was filmed, and Universal was not able to to get his services. He made only one uh, one talking film, and uh, since he died, we don't know if he would have made a successful transition to to talkies or not. Well, I think also if you look at his film, if you look at his actual filmography, I mean, he interspersed horror roles with a lot of other things. You know, he played railroad engineers. He played uh, the uh, drill instructor in uh, Tell It to the Marines, things like that. I have a feeling that he would have found, you know, a, a good sideline, at least, in being a gangster performer in the early 30s as well. Well, quite possibly. He... Um... Uh, Tell It to the Marines, I believe, was his top grossing film of his career. Uh, not The Phantom and not uh, um, any of the Browning uh, collaborations, although they did very well. Uh, the most successful collaboration Browning and Cheney had was uh, London After Midnight, which is now a lost film and uh, possibly has an inflated reputation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I talked to some of the people who saw it uh, now no longer with us, uh, people like uh, Robert Block and uh, Forrest Ackerman. And um, they both agreed that uh, Cheney's performance was almost uh, almost comic, that he was he had this uh, elaborate, uh, you know, vampire makeup or uh, a faux vampire. It was somebody disguised as a vampire, not a real supernatural creature. But with these uh, popping eyes and um, shark-like teeth, and uh, movements that I think both uh, Block and uh, Ackerman told me uh, resembled Groucho Marx scuttling around. You know, he didn't have the cigar, but he had the the posture and the and and the move. Um, so we don't know. It's still possible it may it may turn up, um, but uh, the negative and uh, Vault print were destroyed in the fire in the uh, early '60s, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, you know among his performances that survive, I think of it as maybe resembling the monster, which was directed by Roland West. But it's also, I mean, it's kind of a barnstorming horror movie, not to be taken too seriously, uh, and a, a lot of fun. But it's it's played definitely with a wink, and it seems like London After Midnight might have been the same thing. I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, uh, I, I love the monster. Um, I watch it at every chance I get. It, it's just uh, uh, so over the top, and it's, uh, it, it's it's so campy. And I think that you know, London After Midnight. It is you know, it's essentially a, it, it's uh, it's pulling a trick on the characters and the and the audience. So there is a kind of a tongue in cheek uh, uh, quality baked into it from the very beginning. We're talking about all these monsters, you know, misshapen forms. Frankenstein fits into that vein as well. And then there's Dracula, who is a very elegant continental figure in in uh, evening wear. Why why does that why did that appeal to audiences at the same time that these other monsters did? Well, Universal um, bought the rights to both the novel Dracula and to the stage play, 
version of Dracula, which uh, completely transformed the character of Dracula in the 1920s from the, the musty old man who uh, wouldn't, uh, you know, seduce or ingratiate himself to um, anyone. Uh, he was a horrible old man who got younger as he drank blood, but he never became attractive. And uh, But to make it work on the stage, Dracula had to be rethought as the kind of character who could... Uh, who could work in a, uh, a drawing room mystery melodrama, which was the uh, successful formula for this type of stage play in the 20s. And um, Stoker's Dracula uh, wouldn't do that. In fact, he it, Stoker wrote a vampire who's on stage at the beginning of the, uh, uh, the story and then... Um, is just kind of a hovering presence and everybody's worried about him and is anticipating his, his attacks. Uh, but he's not a conventional, uh, character and, but, uh, cleaned up by the playwright Hamilton Dean and given, uh, you know, uh, the smarmy, uh, uh, Transylvanian manner and the evening clothes and, uh, uh, he was able to ingratiate himself into a, in, into a household and, uh, prey upon one of the inhabitants. And it was, um, Universal was interested in having a success. They were, they were worried about Dracula because it was the first time Hollywood had ever taken the chance on a frankly supernatural subject. Uh, there were scary characters in the silent days, you know, usually played by people like Lon Chaney, but no supernatural monsters. Everything had to be explained away as, uh, you know, a criminal machination or somebody trying to embezzle an inheritance. Or, um, and that, that's what London After Midnight, you know, essentially was. Uh, but this was different. And uh, the economy was precarious. Uh, Universal and all the other studios were just teetering on the edge uh, with the uh, onset of the Great Depression. And uh, so they wanted to play it safe. And the stage play of Dracula had been an enormous uh, success in on Broadway, in England, and, you know, on tour across the United States. So uh, it made sense to, uh, you know, base the screenplay largely on the, on the play rather than the novel. And uh, initially, though, they had something much grander in mind. Uh, uh, Dracula was going to be a, a universal super production along the lines of all Quiet on the Western Front, which uh, Carl Lemley Jr. had a tremendous success with. Uh, and so a great investment was made in those uh, in, in the sets, those wonderful, you know, Transylvania and Carfax Abbey sets. But by the time the um, film went into production, they were they were cutting back. They were having terrible budget problems. And uh, and you can see this in, in, in Dracula. The opening scenes are quite quite impressive and atmospheric and uh the camera work is very fluid and then it um kind of slows down and becomes this this uh stagey rendition of a uh of of a play on stage rather than a than a full-blown movie it's fun it's funny uh, carl freund the cinematographer he later uh used that technique to great effect he invented the three camera technique of uh, shooting sitcoms he was the camera director on i love lucy uh in his in his later years but uh dracula was such a novelty and uh that, that it became a surprise success and along with frankenstein really everybody uh pretty much admits uh, uh 
uh, saved the studio from bankruptcy. Um, so Dracula is is not a um, the most polished uh, uh, production. It's very mediocre in some technical respects, but uh, you know, for a so-so movie, it had an outsized impact on the the future of Hollywood it, because it was the first time a frankly fantastic supernatural subject had been um, attempted. And uh, without its success, think of all the things that wouldn't have happened. The, uh, the whole universal horror cycle of the, of the 30s, the revival in the 40s, the science fiction pictures of the, uh, of the, of the 50s and, and afterwards. And it's, it's, it's so strange because these films were uh, not taken seriously by, certainly by the critics. Uh, they were B pictures. They were kind of disposable programmers. At least that's how they were treated, you know, by, by Universal at the, uh, at the time. And it really wasn't until the 60s and 70s that you started seeing serious attention given to directors like Todd Browning and James Whale. Um, until then, it was difficult to even find uh, the names of these films or their directors or their stars in the indexes of standard film histories. They were you know, considered kind of beneath, uh, beneath contempt, beneath discussion. And, um, and now, uh, you know, the fantastic science fiction, fantasy and horror uh, account for some of the biggest blockbusters of all time. The superhero movies right now, you wouldn't classify them as horror, and yet there's so many elements that trace back in some way. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, costumed uh, heroes and villains, you know, Batman obviously relates to the bat going back to the silent era. And of course, these films uh, almost always uh, include a monster. Right. Usually created by not not by makeup geniuses, but by uh, CGI wizards. But uh, the monstrous is now, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's a surefire category. It was always uh, horror was always very successful financially for the studios. Uh, and it's the reason so many major uh, film directors and minor film directors, but people who've gone on to have successful careers in Hollywood got their start with low budget uh, horror pictures. Francis Coppola, for instance. Right. Yeah, because it, you, it was, it's a genre that you can always sell. It, it does. And uh, stage companies, uh, too, um, it, it's kind of a, a piece of kind of received knowledge in the theater world that if your theater company is having uh, difficulties at the box office, all you need to do is stage a production of Dracula and you will. It's, it still, that, that play is still being produced almost constantly somewhere in the world there's some uh professional production or an amateur production or a high school production um it uh it's just one of the uh, dracula is just one of the great money spinning properties you know uh, of the 20th century uh bram stoker himself of course didn't live to uh, to see the success but he did uh, think that the book should be adapted for performance and uh, he was unable to do that, except for a, a, a one-time staged reading of the uh, of the book at the Lyceum Theatre in London. But uh, 
he uh, went to his grave, I think, you know, rather resigned that his life had uh, uh, not given him the literary success that uh, he, he really craved. Yeah, now he's ironically a, a brand name as other more successful writers of the period or not. I mean, nobody's producing Wilkie Collins, The Moonstone. Right, they right. Bram he, Stoker's Dracula. He, Stoker, he wanted um, his employer, who was the... Stoker was also a man of the theater, and he worked for about three decades for the great Victorian actor-manager, Henry Irving. And um, Irving was a great superstar of his time, and uh, Stoker thought he would make a wonderful Dracula. Um, but for the uh, reasons that I you know, talked about earlier, uh, it wasn't a good part for an egomaniacal uh, actor because uh, Dracula is off stage. He doesn't take the spotlight, you know, uh, and uh, Irving thought it was dreadful. And now um, nobody remembers who Henry Irving was. <laughs> Every, right. Everybody knows who Dracula is. Okay, so I'm, this is something I'm not going to include in the podcast, but I just want to tell you. So uh, my mom has all these books that my grand that my great grandparents had. My great grandfather was the president of a small college, and so they had sort of literary books. And I was leafing through this thing called Wit and Wisdom of the Stage, which is from like 1890 or something. And I immediately found a story about Sir Henry Irving, whose name I recognized from uh, Dracula, of course, and that whole history. And the story was that he was riding to the theater in a cab to play in The Merchant of Venice, and absentmindedly he forgot to tip the cabbie. And the cabbie hilariously replied, well, if you plays the Jew on stage as well as you plays it in my cab, you'll be a great success. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh, oh you, well, that is a please, deli delightful please story. Use <laughs> please use it. No, use it. Uh, edit it and use it in the broadcast because it, it uh, underscores something else about Dracula is that in many ways, uh, Dracula in the novel is a um, anti-Semitic stereotype. Along, uh, along the lines of Shylock or um, Dickens Fagan or Svengali. Um, Anti-Semitism was, was rife in the Victorian era, and uh, it, was, it was kind of the air that people breathed. And uh, we see that uh, Stoker falls back on the stereotype of the um, villainous Jew in uh, his uh, characterization of Dracula. So please keep that story in. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that was something I was going to bring up. I mean, it's clearly there's I a never lot heard of... that story that I, it's it's fabulous. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's clear xenophobia about Dracula. I mean, he's bringing some sort of Eastern European evil and just kind of filthiness to and he travels in a coffin full of dirt uh, to, you know, nice, pristine England. And that. That seems, you know, it has clear implications that it seems like Dracula tales never really wrestle with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Dracula is the ultimate um, outsider in, in Victorian terms. Um, there are there are so many levels on which 
you know, the character works. Um, Bram Stoker worked very instinctively, too. I don't think he in consciously intended a lot of the uh, the cultural meanings we, we find in in, um, in in Dracula today, but they were all swirling around him. And uh, the idea of um, evolutionary degeneration was was uh, uh, a big Victorian anxiety and uh, the the idea that there might be a blurred boundary between human beings and lower animals uh, was profoundly disturbing to to the Victorian mind and uh, and in Dracula we have the perfect example of degeneration uh, we see uh, Dracula climbing up and down the evolutionary ladder becoming uh, you know, a lizard-like thing or a bat or a wolf and uh, up and down and up and down. Um, the uh, Stoker was very, um, what well, was a lifelong uh, acquaintance of uh, Oscar Wilde, who um, proposed to the woman Stoker eventually married, um, Florence, who went after Nosferatu. And there are a number of fascinating correspondences between uh, Dracula and and Wilde, uh, both his book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is very much uh, a vampire novel in a more in a more modern or postmodern sense. And uh, in, 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 in his life, uh, uh, Wilde was persecuted, of course, for his uh, homosexuality in 1895. And there are passages in Dracula that uh, Stoker lifts some of the descriptions of Wilde, uh, you know, in, in, in the courtroom. You know, the idea of Dracula and Wilde being the center of an ever widening uh, circle of corruption in, in London at the time, or the many uh, descriptions of Wilde as this bloated, uh, leech-like thing that uh, you find all over the place. And in, in Dracula, we have uh, the vampire being described in exactly, you know, the same, the same kind of terms. And uh, we know that uh, Stoker started uh, work on, on Dracula the same summer that the uh, picture of Dorian Gray first came out. And it was a huge, uh, uh, huge scandal. And uh, Stoker and everybody in in the London literary scene, um, was acutely aware of it. But uh, in my, my, my Stoker uh, biography, Something in the Blood, I go into uh, this uh, connection between Stoker and Wilde uh, in great detail. Uh, I couldn't find a book about Stoker that did this, and so I wrote it myself. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it took longer than I ever imagined, but I'm very pleased with the result. Well, you know, in talking about... Uh you know, sexuality crossing the lines of, you know, what's human and not human. I mean, obviously that's in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein a great deal. The monster goes after Dr. Frankenstein's uh, bride-to-be, and then later there's all the the questions of what's a suitable mate for this monster, and intimations of, of Dr. Pretorius uh, belonging to a an outclass uh, based on his tastes and things like that and then the other one of course around the same time is king kong which is just flat out romantic about a you know 20 foot ape and a uh, you know a blonde showgirl so no it's there uh, you know in dracula the 
as I said before, you know, Stoker's Dracula is not a romantic character, but the book is full of um, it's it, 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 uh, of, of, of sex. Dracula is a sexual predator. He preys on these two young women. Um, he also seems very interested in uh, the hero, Jonathan Harker. So he's kind of a pansexual character. But all of the uh, the intimations of sexuality are treated with uh not with eroticism, but with just uh, disgust by Stoker. And it made it possible for him to publish the book, you know, had uh, the the backlash uh, against Dorian Gray, uh, which people felt glamorized decadence. Um, That was not a model that Stoker could follow and uh, uh, be assured of any success. And he he wrote to make money. Um, He he was consistently uh, uh, cash poor. And he and his wife were both kind of social climbers in uh, in London. And uh, Henry Irving didn't pay him anything near what he was <laughs> worth. It, it, in, in the his notes for Dracula, we see this uh, th- this idea that uh, Dracula was a a source of moral corruption, and that he could put evil thoughts, you know, apparently sexual thoughts, into uh, uh, the minds of his victims. Um, but uh, with the uh, the backlash against Dorian Gray, which also be, Dorian Gray was uh, a central focus of the the case the courts made against uh, against Wilde. The book itself was treated as evidence. The fictional plot was used as if it were uh, uh, were, were, were fact. And um, so Stoker had to to, to save Dracula as a uh, viable commercial property. He uh, had to make modifications, and I speculate a lot about this in, the, in, in my book, but uh, I think it's informed speculation. Well, let's jump ahead a few years in the 30s. Uh, the the horror genre was, was one of the things targeted by the production code uh, and somewhat disappeared, or it was... It, Films are relatively few through the 30s. But then there were reissues of Frankenstein and Dracula starting in the late 30s, which to me is really kind of the beginning of any sort of, you know, nostalgia craze or enthusiasm for long ago films. Uh, seems to be around that time. Uh, there were also there was also when the first real reissues of silent films came along. Uh, you know, Valentino's uh, The Sheik and Son of the Sheik were promoted successfully then. But I think it's it's the beginning of kid monster culture, which is such a big part of it in the fifties and sixties. And I think we both kind of grew up in that. Uh, that that these characters become cuddly in a way. I mean, eventually they become toys and model kits and all those kind of things. Well, in the late um, Depression, um, you know, the revival of uh, Dracula, Frankenstein and uh, uh, King Kong, I think, uh, was among those that were revived in 1938. Um, It was unheard of in Hollywood history. You know, movies were not uh, were not revived. They were considered kind of one-shot events. They were very disposable. It's why so many uh, silent films were just uh, left to rot. But the the idea that it could be financially successful to revive a film 
gave birth to the idea of a uh, of a film franchise, which of course is one of the uh, the most enduring uh, uh, legacies of the. Uh, uh, the, the the monsters and um, and you're right they do go all monsters go through this cycle of um, uh, at first being new and unexpected and terrifying and then with uh, repeated exposure become become familiar and become characters of fun uh, you know we, we've seen uh, you know uh, think of Godzilla who you know first was a an evocation of uh, of the atomic bomb itself. And uh, the destruction it uh, uh, laid on on, on on Japan, but as uh, Japan's economy uh, bounced back and it became a major uh, and prosperous economic power in the world, uh, Godzilla became uh, friendlier and friendlier, and then was almost like a like a, a Barney like uh, <laughs> dinosaur. But then um, then swung back. And uh, uh, and it became a figure of terror again. And we've seen this with the Universal Monsters. You know, they uh, uh, they're absolutely scaring the pants off the public uh, on first exposure, and then uh, ultimately uh, meeting up with Abbott and Costello and being transmogrified into the monsters. And and then we've got these big budget uh, prestige remakes of. Uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, you know, from directors like Coppola and Kenneth Branagh. Um, so the uh, these monsters stay alive because they they do transform themselves. They are not static. They uh, uh, they're always finding new shapes, and uh, that's the key to their immortality. You know, I used to be like a lot of uh, you know academics uh, uh, critical. Of the fact that uh, Hollywood never seems to get these novels right, yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's it's true. But it's I over all the years I've been doing this, I you know I've come to the conclusion that uh, Dracula and Frankenstein uh, would not be as popular or as ubiquitous as they are today had uh, there been a definitive. Uh, literary adaptation, you know, in the, in, in the 1930s, uh, it is, they, they, they work like, uh, like the oral folklore tradition in which in, in, in folklore, uh, the stories are transmitted orally and one teller adds something to it. It's like the, you know, the game of telephone. And I think that, uh, these horror icons work in exactly the same way and they are, they're modern folklore. They, they truly, they truly, they, they are our, our dark gods and goddesses and uh, kind of like the minor deities of uh, Roman <laughs> antiquity or something. Um, they, uh, but they, they do preside over our culture. And I think uh, we will be seeing these, uh, these creatures or some variation of them, you know, um, hundreds of years hence. Why do you think kids particularly loved them in the 50s and 60s and, and made them such pop culture phenomena well they were uh they were heavily marketed to kids uh that's for sure there were uh, all of the uh, uh there were the monster magazines and the fan clubs and the model kits and uh, again hollywood was learning how to uh exploit franchises and um young people are always uh, you know prime targets of that so that that was that was part of it but i think they're not sure about dracula but you know the frankenstein monster is 
Karloff always said that uh, children responded to it, even back in the 1930s, with um, with sympathy. And uh, the Frankenstein monster was a uh, set upon outsider, uh, misunderstood. Um, I think it's probably the reason that uh, you know monsters are especially you know appealing to uh, to adolescent boys, and uh, they they reflect all of the uh, uh, difficulties of of acculturation that that uh, teenage boys go through. And it you know it's been said that uh, you know Americans don't like to grow up. Baby boomers, especially, we don't want to get get rid of our uh, we don't want to let go of our childhoods. And uh, I'm certainly a prime example of that. I never thought I'd be um, still making hay out of monsters this late in my life. Uh, You know, I I was uh, I was in it big time when I was a kid and then I put it all away and I grew up and I had this career in the theater and and uh, I didn't come back to it until I was uh, almost 40 years old. And I thought I was doing a one-shot book, you know, at the uh, urging of my agent. And uh, it uh, turned out not to be that way. And uh, suddenly people are calling me Mr. Monster. And uh, I guess it's a a fate I deserve. I monster, David Skull, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. uh, I tried to get my sons into into the Universal Monster movies early on. And... It just wasn't quite their thing until one of them was was right around 12 or 13 and he watched the Wolfman. And then that was the one for him. You know, this poor guy going through these experiences of suddenly becoming larger and hairier and he can't do anything about it. And that one just spoke to him so deeply. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, it's the obvious, you know, the obvious thing of uh, the sprouting hair and the ruined faces and 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 all that uh, uh the frankenstein monsters you know difficulty with the opposite sex uh was part of lon cheney's appeal back in the 20s he was a character not just in his uh, horror roles but uh part of the cheney formula was that he was the leading man who never got the girl so there there is that point of identification uh, uh that uh generations of uh you know young people coming of age and dealing with uh, growing up and dealing with their sexuality and uh, there's been plenty for them to uh, uh, to find in monster movies yeah how do you feel about uh, modern horror as as say uh, as a subgenre I mean it, it's easy enough to find I mean there's probably been more bad horror movies made than anything else in recent times and yet there you've run across some sometimes i mean to me like get out is a classic old dark house picture it has mad scientists in it it's out in the country you know they're gonna they're gonna physically transform the guy you know it's it it hits all the all the beats of of you know the cat in the canary or the monster or something like that oh exactly yeah yeah i mean nothing nothing's new in you know in um genre entertainment um uh, what goes around comes around and comes around and comes around and and even you know sometimes in in the in histories of uh, horror films uh, you know Hitchcock's Psycho is supposed to be a big turning point um, but it's not it's it's very uh, it reaches back it is in many ways a haunted house story it is a story about uh, the return of the dead. Uh, the possession of a 
of, of a young person by a malevolent spirit, you know, the mother. Uh, um, it uh, is not breaking all that much new ground. Um, and the monster figures tend to inform each other. Um, in, in the monster show, I talk about, you know, our classic uh, horror icons as being dream carvings on a dark carousel of the, uh, the American imagination. And uh, the faster the carousel turns, the more one monster looks like another. So I was thinking I would ask, name a horror film that you think people should see more of. I mean, I, I assume anyone who's listened this far will have seen the famous ones. What's one that you love and think has uh, kind of deep, deep resonances within it that maybe people have overlooked? Oh, good Lord. Um, no, people are always asking me, you know, what's your favorite uh, uh, version of I'm trying of not to ask bracket. that directly. <laughs> uh, but, but I... But it's my answer to your question is is kind of the same. You know, it's it's it, I think in terms of moments in in films and my favorite version of a classic uh, like Dracula or Frankenstein would be a composite of all my favorite scenes from the films, you know, um, edited together in some kind of a, <laughs> a master mix. Uh, um, I you know I love the whole. Uh, the whole genre. Uh, but I think a film like, uh, Robert Wise's, uh, the haunting, the first version of, um, the haunting is, and the films of Val Luton are, uh, they're not, they're not flashy. You know, they, they do not, uh, rely on, on makeups and, uh, special effects. Uh, they are, they are mood. They are about uh, light and shadow, mostly shadow. And we complete those terrifying uh, creatures in our own minds. And I think that's where uh, horror really shines. That, that's why uh, horror is always, it's, it's been a terrific uh, subject for uh, radio drama. And radio drama works for the same reason that uh, stories around the campfire work. And it uh, gets back to the, you know, the oral tradition. We, uh, we have a uh, great need to, to share stories, uh, especially disturbing stories. For some reason, we, uh, they, they seem to stick the, the fastest. But this, this idea of participating in the creation of the scary thing. Uh, I think I think is key, and so Val Luton, The Haunting, or or just low budget films that don't uh, don't have the uh, the resources to create, and sometimes are very bad. I mean, I think that's why I like uh, Ed Wood's films is that they evoke so much. I mean, they are so campy because they are failures, and but we know what they're trying to be. So in a sense, we're adding something to the uh, experience uh, and that, that, that constant uh, c- comparison back and forth. Um, and Ed Wood's, ah, we don't have the budget, so, you know, the pie tin will be a flying saucer. There's something about uh, tragic overreaching, you know, it's almost, <laughs> there's a Promethean uh, aspect to um, Ed Wood that perhaps should be better appreciated. But I think the... Um, Understanding the way that uh, 
monsters and horror um, require the participation, our own participation. It's not a passive experience. You know, uh, it, it's a uh, it's a joint effort. And it's, uh, you know, and so it's perfect for, for pop culture, which grows out of uh, folklore and it grows out of, uh, you know, ancient, ancient uh, human impulses and needs. Thanks to my guests, Lockie Heiss and David J. Skull. And thanks to Michael Schlesinger for connecting me with his old college pal. I'll have links for David Skull's books in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod, with help from that Tchaikovsky guy again, and a guy named Bach, too. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And again, Help us all out by leaving a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I'll be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Thanks. Lenore? Is that you?